0: the Jewish festivals are not evenly distributed. If you look at the Jewish calendar, you see that the Jewish festivals are bunched together in clumps. And of course, none of those clumps are bigger than the season of the festivals and the noteworthy days beginning in the month of Elul. We have, of course, the month of Elul. An entire month to prepare for the high holidays, prepare for Rosh Hashanah. And then we have two days of Rosh Hashanah, intense days of prayer, days of coronation of God, days of judgment, of course. And we have the 10 days of repentance, followed by the most significant day of the year, Yom Kippur. We fast, of course, for 25 hours. We repent. We confess. We make sure, of course, ahead of time that we are good with all our friends because Yom Kippur, of course, atones only for sins between man and God. But the festival season is not over with the conclusion of Yom Kippur. Four days after Yom Kippur, we begin the festival of Sukkot, of Sukis, And we have seven days of Sukkis, followed by Shemitah followed by Simchas Torah. It's essentially a packed two months of special days. And after we conclude Simchas Torah, we have nothing really in the calendar until Hanukkah, which is of course a rabbinic festival and then Purim, and nothing until Pesach. And our just tell us that these days, beginning with Elul, Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days of repentance, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, it's really one continuous process. We're trying to set ourselves up spiritually for the whole year. If we do this properly, the effects of this process will reverberate for the entire year and likely for years to come. What I want to do today is to look at the big picture. To try to understand what is the goal of these days, what do we want, what do we need to emerge with from this festival and holiday season. If you look at it, it seems like it's a long, complicated process with many different, apparently unrelated themes. It seems to be disjointed, discreet. Each day has its own meaning Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Days of Repentance, Sukkot, Simchas Torah. They seem to be separate. In this episode, What I want to attempt to do is to reveal what the essence is of what we're trying to get, try to distill it down to the one idea and what the takeaway is and how we set ourselves up to have a successful festival season and please God, a successful year upcoming. So let's begin. The place I want to begin is a very long and interesting and really stunning narrative in the Talmud. It's one that we've talked about in the past, actually numerous times. It's found in the book of Avodah Zarah, beginning on the very first page, which is 2a, going through 2b, through 3a, and ending on the top of 3b. This is a very long narrative, and it's also a very intriguing one, Because it is describing a futuristic world sometime in the future. And when you have such a long piece of Talmud talking about events that have not yet happened, and of course it's written for us, we're supposed to read this. It's obviously actionable to us. It's important and salient and germane to us. It has to be. Otherwise it wouldn't be written to us. So when we read this, even though it's describing events that have not yet happened, events in the future, it is relevant and insightful for us. So we've talked about this in the past, and I want to head in a different direction this time, but let's quickly go through the Talmud and see what it says. It begins on the bottom of 2a of the book of Talmud of Avodah Zarah. It begins by telling us that in the future, the Almighty is going to take a Torah scroll and hold it in his arms, whatever that means, of course, that is not to minister literally. And he's going to announce whoever studied Torah, whoever observed the Torah, should come now and gather reward. Of course, we believe in the model that you do the word today, you do the mitzvot, the Torah study today, and in the future, the Yomai's give give us reward. We call that, of course, future world, we call that Olam So this is a description of the beginning of Olam The Yomai says, okay, now it's time for reward. Whoever, Did the work come reap the benefits? And everyone's going to show up, not just the Jews, all the Gentile nations as well. And the Talmud says that the Romans are going to come and they are going to make their pitch as to why they are deserving of this eternal reward. And they might just say to them, Well, what did you do? And they're gonna respond, Well, we established many marketplaces and many bathhouses, and we made lots of money. And the only reason why we did that is to facilitate the Jewish people studying Torah. And therefore, we ought to be worthy recipients of the reward for the Torah study of the Jews. And the Mice respond to them: He's gonna say, You are world-class fools. When you did all these things, when you established your marketplaces and bathhouses and made lots of money, you didn't do it for the Jewish people, you did it for yourselves. You made marketplaces to have brothels, you made bathhouses in order to luxuriate yourself. Oh, and the money that you thought you amassed, it wasn't even yours. Quotes a verse in scripture, the book of Haggai, "Li hakesef, vilihazav, nu'am The money, the silver, the gold is all mine," says God. Do you have Torah? And of course, they don't have Torah. And they are going to leave in grand disappointment. The Romans are not candidates to get this reward. And then the Persians are going to come. And the Bible them, well, what did you do? Well, we built bridges and we conquered many towns and provinces and we made many wars and the sole purpose of all of our activities was only to facilitate that the jewish people could study torah and therefore we should get the reward or part of the reward that the nation of israel accrued with their torah study and the might respond to them quite similarly no you built bridges to charge tolls to charge taxes oh and you conquered lands to get manpower for your army Oh, and wars? You didn't make the wars. I made the wars, again, quotes a verse in Isaiah. And therefore, if you don't have Torah, you are not a candidate to get the reward. And again, they leave in grand disappointment. And that happens with every nation. Now, the Talmud continues that when these nations, when they get to witness the tremendous reward that the Almighty is dispensing in this time at the onset of all they're so desperate to try to get a piece of the action, to try to get a slice of Olam that they're going to launch salvo upon salvo of arguments to try to legitimize their claim to a stake, to a share, to a portion in Olam So they're going to tell God, the next argument, they're going to tell God, well, did you give us Torah and we did not accept it? It's not fair, you're giving reward to the Jewish people because they kept the Torah, but you gave them the Torah and you didn't give it to us. And the Almighty is going to swat away this argument based upon the idea we spoke about in the past, that before the Almighty gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he offered it to every nation and they all rejected. And thus the claim that the nations were not offered Torah is indeed baseless. And then they're going to respond and say, well, you didn't force us to accept the Torah like you forced the Jewish people. And they might as well respond, well, I did force you to accept the seven Noahide laws. And the Talmud proceeds to demonstrate that they did not adhere to even the seven Noahide laws that they did accept. And then they're going to launch a new objection. And they're going to say, well, the Jewish people, they are not worthy of the reward because they did not faithfully adhere to these laws. And again, the might respond and prove and demonstrate that Israel, in fact, did faithfully adhere to these laws. And finally, when they are out of options, they launch a final desperate salvo, and they say, Amru Lofanov, they're going to tell the Almighty, Reboonosh, Master of the World, T'na lanu mirosh v'nasana. Give us another chance. Give us the Torah now. Now that we see the reward destined for those who observe the Torah, give us the Torah anew. Give us another chance. And the might is to respond to them and again call them fools. You're fools! Whoever toiled before Shabbos can eat on Shabbos. If someone does not toil before Shabbos, from what could they eat on Shabbos? Meaning that the relationship between reward and the work to earn that reward is akin to preparing for Shabbos. If you want to eat food on Shabbos, the only way you could do that can't prepare on Shabbos itself, it's prohibited. You must prepare ahead of time. Similarly, Almaba, well that's the time like Shabbos, where we consume the fruits of our labor that we earned ahead of time. And therefore, what you're saying, says the Almighty of the nations, you want the Torah now? It's too late. The ship has sailed. It's already Shabbos, so to speak. It's already Elam time. It's time for the reward. And only those who put in the effort can reap the benefits. And then comes the most surprising part of the narrative. The Almighty seems to change course. And he says, you know what? Notwithstanding the fact that it's already Shabbos, and you can no longer work on Shabbos, so to speak, to earn the reward of Shabbos, nevertheless, I'm going to give you a second chance. I'm going to cede to your request, and I'm going to give you a mitzvah, and I'm going to give you a second chance to earn eternity. And this mitzvah is an easy mitzvah. It's an inexpensive mitzvah. It's called the mitzvah of sukkah, of sitting in a temporary dwelling home. Make a sukkah. Sit in the sukkah. And you can earn eternal reward. And the Talmud was very perplexed by this. Thomas says, wait a minute. We know that the verse tells us that the mitzvahs that the Almighty commands us to do today, today we're supposed to do them and not get reward, and tomorrow, i.e., after it's too late to do it, that's when we earn the reward. So how can it be when it's already tomorrow, it's already time to earn the reward? It's already Shabbos in the analogy that the Talmud furnishes earlier. How is it possible that the Almighty is giving them a second chance? And the Talmud responds, well, the Almighty does not want to scheme against his creatures. He wants them to feel heard. And that's why he yields to their request. So what we have over here is a future time where everyone is coveting, is seeking desperately the reward of Almaba. The Jewish people, they've earned it through their deeds and their merits and their behavior and their Torah. The nations have failed, so to speak, to earn it. They have not maintained the level of morality and behavior and character needed to earn a portion in Almaba. But now they have a second chance with one mitzvah. They could do it violating the rule that you cannot do work on Shabbos, to be consumed on Shabbos, violating the rule that today we're supposed to do the work and only tomorrow get the reward, the might says, I'm going to give him a second chance. Here's the mitzvah of sukkah. Go ahead. Go make your sukkah and earn your eternal reward in all So what happens? Talmud tells us right away when given this incredible opportunity, every one of the Gentiles, every one of the nations is going to go, and make a sukkah on the roof of their homes, and the Almighty is going to unleash a heat, a heat wave, unprecedented heat wave, and it's going to be so sweaty, and so sweltering, and so miserable in the sukkah, that every person is going to leave their sukkah, and kick it on their way out, I'm fed up with this, it's too hot, too sweaty, let me go inside to the air conditioning. And the Talmud concludes, the Talmud says, wait a minute, but isn't there a law that says that if it's raining in the sukkah, if it's very uncomfortable in the sukkah, you don't need to remain in the sukkah? So why are they blamed by the fact that they left the sukkah when it was so hot? You're allowed to leave the sukkah when it's so hot? Says the Talmud. Nevertheless, the fact that they left it and kicked it and booted it on the way out, that shows that they really had disdain for this mitzvah. And that's why they are not able to earn a portion in the This is an amazing piece of Talmud. I recommend everyone who can to read it inside. It's it's just so interesting and so beautiful and so intriguing. And last year, this past year on Sukkot, we spoke about how indeed it would have worked, what would have been in that counterfactual world that they did adhere to the mitzvah of sukkah. How is it possible to earn olam ba with just one mitzvah? We talked about how lucky we are to have a sweltering sukkah. I'm sure y'all remember that. That episode was titled, Dreaming of a Sunny Sukkah. And we also spoke about the fact that had the Romans and the Persians indeed done all their deeds to facilitate the Jewish people studying the Torah, that would have been a valid argument. But today, I want to approach this from a different angle. So, the first question is, it's not fair. Jewish people, we have to work our whole lifetime to do all the mitzvos. All such thirteen mitzvos. And only then are we meritorious to earn Ol Mabah. And these Gentiles, after they've already been shown the tremendous reward of Mabah, they are given a get out of jail free card. It's not fair. Question number one. Question number two: Why indeed are they not up to the test? You know, imagine if I offered you a million dollars. For a few hours or even a few days of pain, sit in a hot sukkah, I'll give you a million dollars. You'll find a way to do it. Why are they not up to the task? Why did they fail? Now, it's also interesting, the Talmud tells us that all these Gentiles built their Sukkot on the roof. They could have very easily put it on their front driveway, on their porch. The Talmud is usually very precise In its word usage, and it tells us that these Gentiles are going to build their sukkah on the roof. What is the meaning? What is the insight? What's the secret behind the fact that the Gentiles, the idolaters in this future world, in this futuristic world, where they might be dispensing reward for those who adhere to Torah, why are they building their sukkah on the roof? But I think perhaps the most problematic aspect of this narrative, it seems to be directly contradictory. They ask God, they say, okay, well, we failed. We failed. We didn't do it. We didn't do the seven Noahide laws. We didn't work hard on behalf of the Jewish people so they could study Torah. But give us the Torah anew. Give us a second chance. And they might respond by saying, you're fools. It's not possible. Whoever works and whoever toils before Shabbos, well, they get to eat on Shabbos. And now it's Shabbos, and it's too late to toil. If you didn't prepare ahead of time, it's too late. It seems like the might is establishing a precedent that the only way to get the reward is if you do the work ahead of time. The reward of olam Abba is akin to the reward of consumption of your work that you did before Shabbos. And it's only possible to do the work before Shabbos. That's a rule. Whoever toiled before Shabbos gets to eat on Shabbos. Whoever did not toil before Shabbos does not get to eat on Shabbos. And then right away, the mice says, you know what? I'm going to violate that rule. Nevertheless, I have this one mitzvah. I'm going to give you this one mitzvah. And if you do this mitzvah, you get the reward. Wait a minute. What's the rule? I thought the rule is that if you work before Shabbos, then you get to eat on Shabbos. If you don't, then you cannot eat on Shabbos. Yet the Almighty says, "Oh, okay, fine, but nevertheless, I'm going to heed to your request. Here's one mitzvah, easy mitzvah, it's mitzvah of sukkah. You do the mitzvah of sukkah, and you get the reward, despite the fact that it's a Shabbos." Seems like there's a direct contradiction. If you prepare, you get, and there's no second chances. Yet the Almighty says, even though you did not prepare, here is a second chance. Normally, we have a rule: you have to do the work today, and tomorrow you get the reward. If that's the rule, why did God change it for them? So I want to suggest an approach to understand this Talmud, answer all our questions, but also to build from it a framework of what all the days, the run-up days, Elol and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, what is a framework to understand these days, this time of the year in general? What's it all about? The Almighty tells him, if you want to enjoy The food on Shabbos, you have to work ahead of time. Oh, and you want to violate that rule? I'm going to let you try. But I'm going to demonstrate to you that what you want is foolish. It's not possible to consume on Shabbos unless you prepared before Shabbos. You cannot just jump to the end without the work done ahead of time. I'm going to give you a second chance, but I know it is doomed from the start. And they're sure he's wrong. Give us the mitzvah and let us try. So they eagerly build a sukkah on their roof. They're trying to build a spiritual edifice by building the roof first. They don't have a foundation. They don't have walls. There's no house. All they have is a roof. And of course, quite predictably, it all Collapsed. They got a get-out-of-jail-free card that was impossible to use. It was impossible to actualize. It was doomed from the start. What they sought was an impossibility. They wanted a houseless roof, a foundationless roof, a roof without walls, without any support structure. An edifice like that doesn't work. You cannot have a building floating in the air. There was never a way for them to get what they wanted. And perhaps, based upon this idea, we can suggest a framework for these days. Perhaps we can suggest that this entire season is us building our edifice. The month of Elul is a month of preparation. We're trying to get in the right frame of mind for the building process. Maybe we, if, we, uh, if we're using the building metaphor We're preparing the architectural plans. We're getting the permitting. We're getting ready. Rosh Hashanah is the foundation of our spiritual edifice. At the foundation, we coronate God. We accept His dominion. We're accepting the dominion of God, but we're not focusing on our behavior quite yet. There's no mention, for example, of repentance for sins. On Rosh Hashanah, we're not dealing with the, so to speak, visible parts of our spiritual world. We're dealing with the foundation. But of course, the foundation is critical because only with a strong foundation can you build, so to speak, the visible parts of the edifice. Yom Kippur, well, that's the walls. That's the viewable parts of the person. You know, if you ever watch a house being constructed... It seems strange, like there's like nothing going on, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then in one day, the whole house goes up, which is the, the, the framing of the house. And then again, nothing, nothing, nothing for six months. That's the process. We have, so to speak, the soul of a person, a person's belief, a person's priorities, a person's values, a person's ideology. All that is invisible. That's Rosh Hashanah. The Rosh Hashanah is the, foundation. It's invisible once the edifice is built. The walls, the parts of the house that you see, that's the behavior, that's the deeds, that's the habits, that's the mitzvot. That's what you see. What you see is the walls. First, you build a foundation, and on top of that, you build the walls. And this model is found elsewhere, of course, in Jewish literature. The Talmud in the book of Brahmas, page 13a, asks the question: why do we read the chapter of Shema, the first paragraph, Shema Yiswa Shem Kam Echad Why do we read that before the second paragraph? It says the Talmud, Kadeshi Kabul, alav, Al Shemaim tchila First you accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven, and only then do you accept upon yourself the yoke of mitzvos? There are various yokes that we carry with us. First, We have the foundation. The foundation is the yoke of the kingdom of heaven. That is Rosh Hashanah. It's the foundation where we accept the dominion of God. We submit ourselves to his rule. And then comes Yom Kippur, and we accept the second yoke, so to speak, which is the yoke of mitzvos. What happens after we have those two yokes in place? We have the foundation. We have the walls. Now it's time to secure it. Now it's time to seal it. Now it's time to ensure that what we've earned, so to speak, over the course of Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that is secured and sealed and we cover it with a roof. And that is Sukkot. We create an environment to ensure that the system that we've built is going to endure. And the cap of it all the final punctuation of this month of festivals is Simchas Torah. It's joy, it's delight, it's happiness with the Torah. Perhaps we can say that this all corresponds to the third paragraph of the Shema, Vayomer, where we remember all the mitzvot. We have our tzitzes to ensure that we don't depart from the mitzvos. We see the close and intimate relationship with God fostered by the mitzvot. Over the course of this entire season, we are building the spiritual edifice in which we will reside for the entire year. That's a long process. You can't just start with sukkahs. You can't just start with the roof. It's going to collapse. The Talmud tells us the book of Yvamas, page 63a, I'm a Rabbi, Elazar, Rabbi Elazar says, Call Adam Shain Lo Karka. Every man that has no land is not a man. A no Adam is not a man. You read this simply, it doesn't have any immediate understanding. What does this even mean? It's like kind of reminiscent of the time when only white land owning males could vote. Is that what it means? Of course not. There's a deep idea here. You want to be an Adam a man, a person. You want to be developed as a person, a person the way the Torah describes a person, someone who really develops themselves into the kind of person, the kind of being that the Almighty wants them to develop themselves into. To develop yourself as a person, to be an Adam, a man as described by the Talmud, you need to be grounded. You have to have character. You have to have land. You cannot try to build a skyscraper without being firmly rooted in the ground. The successful model is, of course, the story of Jacob's ladder. We read in Parsha's Vayetze. It's got to be firmly rooted in the ground, and only then can you have the top of the ladder ascending to heaven. That's the structure of these days. What the nations try to get, they might tell them, it's futile. You didn't prepare ahead of time. Today's the time for work. Tomorrow, it's too late for work. Tomorrow's the time for reward. But give us, give us nonetheless, okay, I'll, I'll show you what you want. What you want is an impossibility. You want a roof without a foundation, and that's not possible. And of course, every year, we are building this framework, this edifice throughout this season. Let's call that insight number one. If you read this Talmud very deeply, I think you find another fantastic and very surprising insight. What is the essence of this edifice? What's the goal? What are we trying to actually come away with? What we're actually trying to come away with is a desire to have a connection. It's a desire to do mitzvos. The sole problem that was lacking when he tried to build a roof without a building, without a house, without walls, without a foundation, is that when things get a little difficult, you kick the sukkah in disgust. That's what happens without preparation. Ergo, the goal of preparation, the takeaway, the thing that we walk home with after the season is over, the edifice that ensures that we can earn that reward for eternity, is being joyful in the mitzvot. To be happy to have responsibility. To be happy to forfeit something, to sacrifice something for God. I think there's two very important takeaways over here. The expectation for us is very targeted and really very small. The money expects us to want connection, to desire a relationship with him, to prefer to have the mitzvah, not to view just the mitzvah as transactional. Oh, let me do it mitzvah so I can get the reward. To want to do it, and when I have to leave, it's sad. Because I didn't want the mitzvah just for the transactional value of getting the reward. To be desirous of improvement. To be desirous of identifying as a soul. All that matters is what do you actually want. The Talmud tells us that really the only thing that's in our hands is what do we desire? Do we desire to come close to the Almighty? Habalathair, someone who wants purification? He'll get it eventually. Whoever wants the opposite, that's available for you as well. And the Talmud frames this whole question as what is our bottom line? What's the desire that we have? The results of our behavior is really not in our hands. You can want to do a mitzvah and it just doesn't work out. Not your fault. the results. Well, that's up to God. The one thing that is in our hands is determining what we desire. And the objective of this season is to arrive at the sukkah, at the roof, at the conclusion, and we can't do the Mitzvah and we still want it. To leave this season of festivals with a desire to do mitzvahs, with a desire to seek a relationship with the almighty and the second principle which is really the first principle we mentioned is that when you want to build something enduring you cannot start from the end you have to have sturdy robust foundations upon which to build your edifice there is grave danger trying to build something without secure foundations over the course of these days, we are building our year upcoming. And like I mentioned at the onset, not just our year, done properly, the effects of a good festival season will reverberate throughout a lifetime. If you want to build a successful year and a successful life, you have to have strong foundations, robust walls, and only then, build a roof. And this is true, of course, when we want to build a year and when we want to build a life as well, it must follow this same model. The role of parents is to lay down the foundations of their child's life. To embed deep roots and strong foundations and, of course, like a foundation, it's invisible. Like The foundation of their hand, it is what keeps the building standing. And I think the following point is very critical. If you are fortunate enough and righteous enough and brave enough to want to reinvent yourself, if you're courageous enough to make a change in your life, if you're courageous enough to say, I want to grow and study In Israel, in Yeshiva, I want to really examine what life's all about. You have to realize that your change must follow this model too. There's a very sad reality that there are people who were inspired by Torah. They were inspired. They recognized it's true. And they did mitzvahs and they connected with those mitzvahs. And they started to observe Shabbos and they felt amazing about it. And maybe even they went to Yeshiva and they became religious, they became observant, they became even pious. And then they lapsed back into the previous life. They underwent spiritual recidivism. Why? Why does such a sad and tragic thing happen? I suspect it's because they maybe jumped too far too fast. They wanted to go to the roof. And the foundations weren't quite strong enough. Maybe they were weak. Maybe they were non-existent. And such an edifice does not endure. If you want to do this, you have to follow the dictum of the Talmud. "Call Adam If you're not rooted in the ground, and making sure that what is connected to the ground is strong and secure and robust, you're not going to be a man. You won't be able to develop yourself. Only commensurate to the strength and robustness of your foundation can you build your life. Very, very important point. And I think on a very minor scale as well, Yom Kippur, we're told, to make a small resolution. We're making a change. The change is really small. And the reason why we do that, the reason why when you want to adopt A new good habit, you take a small incremental steps is because we are very scared of building roofs that don't have a foundation, of building roofs that don't have the basis upon which to justify such a roof. You choose something small, big enough perhaps to build something strong, secure and enduring above it, but small, don't shoot for the stars unless you are firmly, firmly, securely rooted in the ground. May we all make the most of these days. May we all successfully build a strong and robust and enduring spiritual edifice for this year, and indeed, for our life. And let's not make the same mistake that the Gentiles did, to think that we could jump at the very end and say, oh, okay, well, let me get the roof, I'll get the roof and I'll be good. That's doesn't work. That's a fool's errand. We're going to prepare ahead of time, make sure that we have a strong foundation, strong walls, and a nice and glorious and beautiful and secure and enduring roof to cap it off with. As always, Motras is Rabbi Wolby at gmail.com. I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.